yes, hello and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Cover podcast. Welcome back to this two-part podcast special and welcome back to the Sustainability Leaders Forum. I think that's all the welcome backs done. If that all sounded very confusing to you, it means you haven't listened to episode one of this two-parter, which confusingly is episode number 80 of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. So do go and listen to that now uh, to hear more about what the forum is, um, what it had in store on day one, uh, and including interviews with speakers from the likes of WWF and Interface. Uh, Definitely worth a listen. So what's in store for day two, I hear you ask? Well, that's a very good question. And yet again, I have the ED team on hand to explain. Uh, so good morning to Sarah George and James Everson. I trust we're all well, well rested today? Yeah, not feeling too bad. It's always good. So. Fresh as a daisy. Fresh as a daisy. That's fresher than I am, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sarah, uh, last time we spoke to you, you were being whisked away in an electric taxi. How was the round table last night? It went really well. So we had 15 people coming together to discuss. Um, the theme was sustainability. sustainability sorry leadership in 2020 and beyond so looking not only at what the big issues are that need to be tackled um, how actions and ambitions need to be upped but how the sort of role of the professional is is changing people describe previously having sort of pushed this boulder uphill convince people to get buy-in for product uh, products and projects um, and now their board is coming to them and expecting them to do a completely different um, role off the back of new legislation and climate activism. So really productive talk. Great, looking forward to the roundup on that. Sounds like you've got your, your work cut out to, to do that justice, but I'm sure you'll. Uh, James, what about you? I mean, I tried to have a quick catch up with you at the end of yesterday, but as soon as you heard there was a drinks reception, you, yeah, were, you off. were off. Yeah, I was off. You know, I just I was desperate for that. Um, no, I was. Uh, I had a really good uh, session at the end, as, uh, as you were saying, on the Chatham House part. Really, really interesting and really great to see how sort of leaders are kind of getting together to, to overcome their own challenges and and there was a lot of um, in a very forthright opinion in the room which is which is always great and uh, and yesterday evening I was kind of going through today and having a look at what we've got going on and uh, yeah really excited to see sort of a number of different uh, different workshops going on and, and, and be really excited about some of the stuff around communications especially and uh, turning negatives into positives uh, which I believe there's going to be some interesting discussion on so um, I'm looking forward to that and uh, yeah we've got our net zero hospitality and leisure report coming up uh, so I'm going to meet a few people today to chat about that. Very nice. Uh, I have a question here to ask Luke how he's feeling ahead of his big speech uh, at the awards tonight in front of around 650 people. He's not here. He's probably <laughs> rehearsing. Um, I, I'm going to make it my uh, my my mission possible as such to, to speak to him on the podcast at some point today. Um, whether that's, you know, after a few drinks of the awards or not, I don't know. I have told him <laughs> that the longer he's absent, the more fake excuses you're going to Oh, exactly. Um, So, James, you've already kind of covered what you're going to be focused on today. Sarah, what what about you? What are you going to be looking into? Um, So, I'm going to be mainly in sessions this morning. We have three keynote speeches coming up from Unilever, TerraCycle and Firminich. Yes. Um, Really looking forward to those. I pre-interviewed Tom Zaki from TerraCycle ahead of this event about Loop, um, what it means for a company that's been predominantly in recycling um, to sort of be really putting their weight behind reuse. Um, so I'm interested to see what more he has to say on that this morning. Um, and then going into this afternoon, as well as preparing for the awards, I hopefully have talked with Ryanair 
um, which yes, really that will be an interesting interesting time to, to speak to them. It's good to have companies um, that we don't usually have at the forum, and especially ones that probably aren't as far along the sustainability journey as others. So yeah, that should be a really interesting mm -hmm. chat with, uh, with Reiner. Um, and yeah, I, I interviewed uh, Gilbert Gostein, the CEO at Verminich, uh, a few months ago, and definitely probably the, one of the most knowledgeable chief executives I've spoken to on, yes. on this matter so he should be um, he should be really insightful uh, as for me I'm going to be bringing you lovely people at home more exclusive interviews I count five on my to-do list six if we include Luke but he's not really an exclusive <laughs> interview is he um, if you get to the end of the episode and there's less than that that means I've managed to screw up this episode somewhere along the line so no pressure on me um, but as Sarah mentioned she's off to capture the keynote speeches uh, James off to capture some new ideas for the insight reports Luke's trying not to catch stage fright too early and I'm off to catch our first big interview of the day wish me luck guys So we've just come out of the first part of day two of our Sustainability Leaders Forum. Uh, three keynote speeches to kick us off featuring Unilever, TerraCycle and Thermanech, which is uh, quite a way to start the forum. Uh, I then sat in on a session called uh, The Regenerative Alternative, Accelerating the Circular Economy. Again, the businesses involved there were, were some of the biggest in terms of corporate sustainability. So we had Mars, PepsiCo, Microsoft uh, and Tetra Pak. Um, and I, I promised you all listening at, at home that I would, I would grab a, a speaker from one of those big companies and that's exactly what I've done. So joining me now is Kate Wiley, the uh, Global Vice President for Sustainability at Mars Incorporated. Kate, uh, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. I think it's been, I think we were just discussing beforehand, two years since uh, we last got to speak to you. So, so how are you? I'm great, thank you. I've had a baby since then. He's now two. That's how we were deciding on the time. I'm very well. Yeah, very well. Great. And I suppose that's a good place to start, because it's two years since I spoke to you. Obviously, you've been back and working um, for is it almost yeah. a year yeah. since then. I, I always mention to, to people I get the chance to speak to how corporate sustainability and just the conversation around climate change and sustainability has accelerated over the two years um, since then. So I imagine the the before and after of your maternity leave, the, the, the change of pace and the conversations were probably quite different for you, is that fair mm. to say? Yeah, so I'd say it's on climate change. I think, you know, we're, we, um, we've been very strong advocates um, on in the US on sort of we are still in. And I think that, you know, that was happening before I left, but it's definitely this sort of that, that global message on, you know, we've got 10 years to sort of sort this out um, is definitely, has definitely escalated. On um, packaging, I would say, you know, before I left, it was, it was a, it was a topic we were working on um, and thinking about. And now, when I came back from maternity leave a year on, it was um, th the most pressing issue on sustainability that we needed to address and one of the biggest for the company. So it completely shifted. Um, and you can see that same you know, mirroring in um, other other organisations within our um, sector as well. Yeah, I think I think the real kind of public awareness, it's called the Blue Planet Effect, essentially, in the yes. UK, isn't it? Yeah, I think, I think the public perception of that really... Uh, delivered a, a step change in, in corporate um, ambitions around the circular economy. Uh, in general, I think a lot of people, a lot of companies kind of had to 
had to jump before they were pushed, so to speak, and say, yes, we are going to do stuff here. But I think there's also been uh, a bit more nuance around the conversation, and there's an acceptance that there's no silver bullet for this. There's no one-size-fits-all. Yeah. And that was kind of the session you were in uh, earlier, the accelerating the circular economy. I think when I was sitting there, one of the key things I took from it was that um, all the businesses realise the part they have to play, but this this requires a lot of joined up thinking to essentially stop viewing resources as waste. Mm-hmm. It involves consumers, it involves governments, it involves the waste collectors and that harmonised policy. Um, that was my key takeaway anyway, if people were interested. What would you say your key takeaway from that, that session was? Well, I was going to say pretty similar in fact, <laughs> actually. So I think there was, one was how, you know, we're, some of us are quite different companies, you know, sort of Mars versus um, Microsoft quite different organizations mm. but still we're trying to address this in you know similar with a similar sort of philosophy and mindset and absolutely that there isn't one silver bullet you've got to try multiple things in some markets but also across different markets there are different issues and there are different waste management systems so it's a completely different tailored approach on the markets and the sectors and um, and absolutely this is a systemic change and so you know it isn't one one actor's responsibility it's every actor's Mm. responsibility across that system be it from companies like Mars um, in the design and the labeling and the um, and the products themselves, the waste management industry and government on the system, and then consumers um, have a role to play in this as well. Yeah, I, I, that's the, definitely the feeling I got from it. And it just, it just sounds like um, this area in particular is going to take so much work to, to get right. Um, there's not going to be a kind of on-off switch for, for leakage in the circular economy in general. This is... Quite a, I suppose I'm just asking you to predict at what point you think that, um, and I, you said in the speech you wanted to split the population into developed and developing. Um, how, you know, and across those, those two areas, how long do you reckon this is going to take to fix? Gosh. <laughs> well, so fix is different in those two places. So um, in the developed world, and again, it's very concrete, hmm. things are being collected, right? So they're getting into a system. What we need to do is scale up that system. And in Europe, you're seeing this change quite fast. You know, you're seeing consumer pressure. You're seeing governments um, adding in policies. We need the waste management systems to innovate, to into advanced sorting and technology. But that could happen in five years. 10 years um, that's you know, that's within sort of arm's reach North America is not progressing at the same rate as would be fair to say so that feels you know there needs to be a lot more pressure on that system um, and the developing market you know um, the, the sheer scale of the the challenge is the thing that I think that sort of slows down and potentially in some of those markets the governments aren't pressing as hard and so you know it does concern me um, that um, that those markets might take longer and that is where the leakage happens as well. And so I'm talking about circular economy with the Vice President of Global Sustainability at Mars and in my mind I'm just viewing packaging basically. Yeah. But I'm guessing circular economy has lots of different um, aspects for Mars as well. It's, packaging is probably the big one, but is there other parts of your organisation where circular economy is really prominent or should be? Well, I think to be honest, um, in general, our business is about sort of buying raw materials. Um, 
and sort of producing a product from those raw materials and then selling them. So um, the circular economy, and generally they're for food. Yeah. So generally the sort of circularity of the food part isn't there so much. So it is generally about the packaging. Um, but there's two aspects to that. We've talked a lot about recycling, but there's also shifting consumption and shifting consumption and packaging into that more circular manner through things as like reuse programs and bulk delivery models as well. And so, you know, that is something we are looking at very seriously. And last week we launched um, the Loop program with one of our um, one of our um, Perfect Fit brands actually in um, France. And this is um, where customers buy um, enough to serve their cats for about um, a week, 10 days. And so, you know, they get this delivered to their home, they have enough service for it, and it's in a very beautifully designed packaging. And then they send that send that package back to be cleaned and then refilled. And so it's a sort of refill delivery service straight to their door instead. So it is about different consumption habits as well. Okay, and I think that leads me nicely on to the, the two questions that I've been asking everyone across both days. Okay. Um, and so you that's kind of a shift, a little bit of a shift to kind of a service-based model oh, and business is becoming much more involved with the consumer in a two-way conversation. Um, I'm asking everyone how the how the role of business uh, in terms of delivering against the SDGs and, and you know, contributing towards the Paris Agreement is going to change over these 10 years. You mentioned at the start, it's an incredibly important decade we're entering. So, so you know, what other, um, I suppose, shifts or transitions or even just whole transformations you think businesses are going to be making over the next 10 years to become inherently more sustainable? Yeah, yeah. So I think this just has to be even more embedded as just part of the core strategy. Um, into the company so you know these um, it just should be treated like any other KPIs that you are measuring people on and this is you know right through from sort of board and management team valuing the company and certainly down to you know everybody's jobs and having KPIs and their you know performances rewarded in that way um, you know and at Mars we do that so we have um, we value our company in the sort of board value our company based on financial and non-financial metrics and the non-financial ones include sustainability they are sustainability KPIs, so um, so absolutely at that level. And then as you track down, you know, it's embedded into the sort of business strategy um, dashboards. Also have these KPIs within it, and then it goes into um, sort of senior level executive remuneration and um, you know people's jobs as well. Um, I mean, we saw last week. Um uh, the H&M, so the former sustainability officer at H&M, is now mm. the new chief executive yeah, there. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I, I yeah. thought it was, a, it was amazing. Yeah. Um, and I think a real sign that businesses do take sustainability seriously. It's now it's becoming business critical for a lot of the leaders. Um, and as a follow-up to that first question, it's clear that the skills of a sustainability professional that's kind of leading uh, the strategy or leading the embedding of the strategy across the business is changing. So, so how do you see the skill set evolving over those 10 years as well? Yeah, yeah. So, the, so I think people entering the profession now, um, I would advise them to come with a technical expertise. I think this has gone from a sort of generalist, you know, 20 years ago when I first started, a sort of generalist sort of sustainability um, um, area into now, you know, you are a sort of climate change expert or you're a sort of a, a packaging or waste management or circular economy expert or a human rights expert. So they need to come in with that, um, with that skill set. And then I would say to the whole industry to be bolder. We've got to be bolder. We've got to be tougher. We've got to, you know, we are change agents or driving, you know, part of this driving that system change. And so, um, you know, we are running out of time. So we've all got to be bolder. 
think that's a, a really good note to finish on. I'm worried that they seem to be rolling out the, the lunch. You can probably hear the clinking of the cups in the background, and the events team get really angry if I look around lunch before any of the delegates have had any, so I better leave before I get shouted at. But Kate, um, it's been a pleasure speaking to you uh, again. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. So the events team finally uh, let me have my lunch, uh, so that's well out the way. And whilst uh, all the other delegates are networking, I've grabbed another speaker uh, from the Leaders Forum to have a quick chat with about the session and about sustainability in general. So uh, Jenny Galbraith, Group Head of Sustainability for British American Tobacco. Welcome to the Sustainable Business Cover podcast. I hope you like our cold not so glamorous yeah, studio. It's, uh, yeah, it's glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, thank you for talking uh, to me during the lunch break. Um, not many people have been too receptive of that offer to kind of move, take them away from pasta and curry. Uh, but thank you for that. Um, how have you found this event so far? I think it's been great. Um, it's, um, I think the, the, the 11 speakers are fantastic anyway. Um, and I think everyone, it's really good to hear a, a good level of um, sort of insightful questioning from all of the audiences, um, which really helps you know, your own experience as a delegate. Um, I think the, the session we've just been in when I was on the panel um, w was really interesting. We had a, a very different or a very diverse group of, of individuals from very different organisations, um, all tackling the same issues but with different stakeholder groups. Um, but what the issues that kept coming back were around how do we make it meaningful? How do you deal with the complexities? Which, you know, as a gay, again, as a you know somebody who's working in house, gives you a bit of reassurance that you're not alone here, and it's not just you and your organisation that are coming up against these barriers. Great, and yeah, that, that session you were in on uh, human rights, equality, diversity, and inclusion. So a lot of things to yeah. kind of tick off in. Uh, I think it was 90 minutes, maybe even less. <laughs> Um, identifying and managing the business impacts on people uh, and I guess it'd be great to get a reflection on that session and why that's kind of so important to British American Tobacco yeah. as well. I think well, at BAT we've, we've got a really long history of stakeholder engagement. Um, you know, we started out in a very formal program of stakeholder engagement 20 years ago. You know, we, we've evolved it over time. Uh, the, the next, you know, the big step we took last year was doing human rights impact assessments. So lots of really, you know, certainly was at the time quite advanced work in the area. Um, but again, listening to other people, so one of my fellow panel members was talking much more about um, the internal side of things and how to manage the data and what they could offer. And again, from the, you know, the construction of materials businesses, some of the very, which were actually quite similar to ours around modern slavery, um, managing overseas supply chains, overseas workers, some of the challenges around that. So whilst we were all very different, we, we clearly had some, some common issues. And again, bringing to this point of how do you make these, this engagement meaningful and um, which for me is about making sure you take action so we don't engage without knowing that we can take action and being confident on you know our ability to do that you're not asking a question it's it's all about making sure that you're you're listening and you're taking back and I think we all had similar experiences around that yeah I think when you kind of hear the, the phrase modern slavery I think the, the kind of images it kind of draws up in your mind is, is perhaps reflective of, of perhaps some of the more local um, mm -hmm. issues as well. But yeah, I imagine for companies with global supply chains, it sounds like yours, um, it's it's probably really hard to get to grips with. And I imagine transparency has been a massive kind of drive for you in terms of uncovering everything of the yeah. material impact across your supply chain. Yeah, definitely. So we, we've done a lot of work um, 
probably six years ago now, we adopted the United Nations Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights as our roadmap around human rights. And um, aside from you know the initial steps you have to take on that journey around policy, the next step we moved into is around due diligence. Now, at the time, we had very good due diligence in our leaf supply chain. Um, um, but we had less in our uh, non-leaf supply chain. So what we have now, on the back of that you know, journey around the UNGPs, is that we've got due diligence across all of our first tier suppliers. So up to 30,000 plus um, leaf, um, sorry, non-leaf suppliers who we're assessing for human rights risk around the world. So that's really opening our eyes up to you know, where our risk areas are, where our weak points, but also making sure that we've done the training of people internally to make sure that they're able to identify and deal with the issues around modern slavery as they come up. Um, luckily for us, we started that work a little bit earlier than the Modern Slavery Act came out, which means that when the, the UK came under the Modern Slavery Act, um, we were very able to meet not the obligations around what's in the statement, but also the content of that statement and be able to talk to uh, stakeholders or whoever was reading those statements, I think, in a very detailed way about how we're managing the risk of modern slavery in the supply chain. And away from the kind of more people-centric aspect of, of I suppose, sustainability CSR, uh, in terms of environment, uh, in terms of environmental impacts, where, where, what's the kind of key focuses of BAT uh, at the moment? Yeah, so we've got, again, an organisation the size of BAT, we, we rarely have one single approach to anything. Um, so we've got within our leaf supply chain, we work very hard with the smallholder farmers that we buy from to make sure that they're using good environmental practices. We've got a team of extension workers that work globally. They meet with the farmers we buy from about once a month throughout the growing cycle. So very much a partnership approach. We're making sure that they're using the right irrigation. We're making sure they use the right seed types, um, soil managed biodiversity, the whole piece. Um, we've then got a second piece that's around our manufacturing. So that's very much about reducing energy use, um, reducing water use, making sure that we've got good environmental practices in our own operations and I think the third area that I'm really excited about um, and we've just begun to work in over the last sort of 12 to 18 months is around circular economy so circular economy economy focusing on waste and plastics but also for us having a real focus on what our products are so we've covered our supply chain we've covered our manufacturing and now we're having a real drive on how we improve the recyclability of our products our packaging how we make much more of a eco proposition to our consumers which is you know a really exciting place to be because that's obviously solidly linked in to the business bottom line and making that a success and i imagine the 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 product aspect of of a tobacco company is quite an interesting one in the csr spectrum um i, I think the thing i like most about the sustainability leaders forum is its ability to get so many different businesses around the table like you mentioned and having a tobacco company and being able to speak into to one like pat is is really unique in the sense that um it's clear that you're you're really focused on sustainability and environmental footprint how do you kind of communicate that with consumers um under the lens that some of the products that you're offering aren't necessarily the best for human health for example mm -hmm. yeah so i think when you talk about um communication with consumers our sustainability agenda has never been consumers have never been the primary mm. focus for that that's why i'm quite excited that we're looking at that circular economy piece that's bringing consumers in really for the first time so when we've been talking about our sustainability agenda we're talking to governments we're talking to ngos right. we're talking to our investors and the harm of our products is the priority issue that we're addressing so we look at our um, the harm of our product we look at sustainable agriculture and 
and farmer livelihoods and we look at corporate behavior so for us it's not environment and sustainability is separate to the harm of our products it's the harm reduction efforts are absolutely intrinsic to our sustainability agenda so it's a complete package for us the way the way we approach sustainability that's good yeah i think there's a lot of transitioning away from um how they historically operate and some of the products they they serve in in light of csr um on packaging front move to servitization for example really interesting points that brings me nice on to my next question which is looking at business transformation which is a key theme of the of the forum um and we're looking at a big decade of action as we kind of move towards the sdgs and a big um de decarbonization chunk of the paris agreement so how do you see uh and businesses take many different shapes and forms but just a hypothetical business what kind of transformation do will a business need to see over the next 10 years to make sure that sustainability isn't a kind of siloed operation it is embedded across the organization yeah i think um in terms of business transition i think it's really interesting because i think um it will be consumer-led so rather than you know the powers that be making decisions on cost or efficiencies or anything else, there'll be a real demand for consumers that um, one that businesses are playing their role in the, you know the, the world's macro issues like climate change, water security, but also that the products and services they deliver have got a purpose and you know good product stewardship, good environmental stewardship, all of those elements running not just to what the products are but what the business models are, leasing, return, all of those things. So I think we'll see a transformation and the big indicator of that will be what the consumer's demanding rather than what the board of the company thinks consumers want to have. Brilliant. And I imagine the sustainability professional then that kind of heads up the, the strategy or at least heads up making the strategy part of that purpose, their skills are going to have to change as well. Yeah, definitely. I think that... Um, the sustainability profession, if you like, has changed in two almost contradictory ways. So I think in one way, the remit has got a lot broader. So 20 years ago, you were kind of looking at community investment or environment um, and maybe a couple of things in between. But if you look at all the things now that a CSR professional or a sustainability professional would be asked to look at, it's huge. It could be tax, it could be diversity, it could be conflict minerals, it could be you know a, a whole raft of things across the ESG, environmental social governance agenda. Um, so I think what sustainability practices have to deal with has grown. But on the other hand, I think the level of detail we need has got more intense. So we need absolutely specialists in, um, in water, we need chemists, we need product developers, material scientists, all of those very deep complex areas are also needed um, and I think being a sustainability professional can be a bit of a lonely place mm. um, you're often you know one or two people in a whole organization which is why my involvement in the ICRS the Institute for Corporate Responsibility and Sustainability is something I'm really passionate about I think what the Institute is trying to offer in terms of support for those individuals who a might be lonely and b whose role is changing dramatically is is really important so everything around you know the competency framework mentoring networking engagement all of those things that the institute offer i think is absolutely critical at this point for um the transition of both the profession and also the way the world's business is changing nice mix of kind of soft skills and, and yeah, those kind yeah, of harder skills which definitely. is great um i realized i did kind of just pull you out of the lunch break and before i did grab you you were speaking to a few people so i imagine there's, there's some people you want to network with right now so i will i will release you from the coldest room <laughs> in the business design center but jenny thank you for your time pleasure
So up next on this proverbial conveyor belt of speaker interviews is Claudia Candioto, the Corporate Responsibility Manager at Hilton Worldwide, and your nod in suggests that I did pronounce that correctly. So. You did. Thank <laughs> you, Matt. <laughs> uh, Claudia, thank you for joining me today. Um, is this your first time at, at one of our events? I, I don't feel like no, I've seen you down here before. No, it's the second time, actually, and I enjoyed it tremendously once, so the second time I've decided that I actually speak at it. <laughs> um, well, that's... Uh, that's, that's great, Jen. What, what have you made of um, this year's session of the forum then so far? It's very, very engaging. I really like how the discourse now is so based on the urgency of what we do and how it's so needed and it needs to be really embedded in the, in the way the business really works. So it's a very strong and clear message, I think. And I think embedding um, amongst the business is kind of the session that you were obviously um, just been speaking on. Uh, I believe it's called Engaging, Inspiring and Empowering Colleagues. So quite a lot to do mm -hmm. on that front. Um, what did you? What were your kind of key takeaways from that session that you were, you were just speaking in? So it's so interesting because I was representing the business side. Um, I have uh, obviously a business that is um, 100 years old to change. Um, and that can only be achieved through a big systems change and really looking at the long-term picture rather than just focusing on what needs to happen right, right, right now. So we have been on a journey now for a long time. And I think that resonates with a lot of the attendees because they deal with complex systems as well. They deal with traditional ways of doing business. They deal with barriers that they need to break so there were a lot of a lot of the questions um, that uh, we were receiving were exactly how do you do that how do you engage your employees how do you know if employees are actually engaged um, and that was a particularly interesting way of seeing what I do through a different lens because um, in the years that I've been with Hilton I've started to really come to appreciate the fact that our team members are very passionate about sustainability and if anything they want to learn how they can have an even bigger impact what their role is and their they're really eager to get even more done. And it's, it's quite an interesting one, especially a company the size of Hilton, because people, I, I don't believe people are, are inherently unsustainable. It's just, it's just kind of habit. Mm -hmm. And they may not know that something they're doing contributes to energy consumption or contributes to waste as well. But at the same time, everyone's got their own motivators, their own drivers, their own thoughts, concerns. So how do you kind of put sustainability uh, into the heart of every function in that sense. Yes, um, it's something that we've been trying to do now for a while. And uh, there isn't one solution that we've come up with, but there are um, there are some clear indicators of how that behavior can be changed over time. So one of the things that we've started to do was to really invest in engaging our leaders and team members in conversations, in dialogues, right? It's so basic, but that's the one way that you actually get uh, people engaged in what you're saying is by active listening to their points of views as well so we started a process of actually speaking with our leadership hearing from their point of view what's um, what's so important in their specific area of business and what barriers are there and where can we actually go together um, from there we started then speaking also with our team members and having the similar conversation around what their passion areas are what the opportunities are in the different locations and through those things we were able to create some targets create some goals that spoke both to where the corporate business wanted to go as well as spoke to what our team members felt passionate about so once we had that co-ownership then everything else cascaded down and the, the one trick that we found is basically leaning in in people's passions wherever we saw we found a way something of interest that was aligned with where we were trying to go we would start with tackling that and then using that as a door for everything else yeah the co-ownership points are really key i was listening to carmel mcquade from mls yesterday and she kind of said one of the key things that a sustainable professional can do is pass the baton give someone else ownership of it it's the way to take it out 
of the um, of the silo. But it sounds like um, just as important is it's got to be a two-way dialogue. It can't be just coming from the sustainability department and not hearing the feedback. Yes, precisely. It has to be that way, both in terms of setting um, initiatives that will work on the long term, but also making sure that it, it that the people who are absolutely accountable to delivering it at the end of the day know what they're doing and know that it's realistic to achieve it as well um, I'm obviously not a construction professional so I will not be able to say what will work specific to the materials that we need to build a building but that will be where the expertise of the specific business department is going to be really key to making sure that they're going to have sustainability initiatives that are going to work both for what they do as well as for what I'm trying to achieve at the bigger picture Great. And, and you mentioned um, this is your second time at one of our events and you, you enjoyed it the first time so much you came to speak, which is a, um, a great uh, anecdote for us. We'll definitely be passing that all over our marketing. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> um, well, what, is it, what is it you kind of want to get from these type of events, these forums? What, you know, in, in your own kind of personal development, what, what is key for you that you're trying to understand a bit more about? Oh, it's so interesting. I feel like, uh, first of all, it's so important to be in a group of like-minded people. <laughs> there is no value that can be uh, attached to that, uh, just being in an environment of people who deal with the same uh, issues that you deal with on a daily basis. Um, and secondly, hearing from other businesses how they've overcome some of these challenges. So what I've tried to do today was being very honest, and I'm open to answering any other questions that might um, pop in between now and the end of the day or thereafter, because I think that it's only by sharing what we're dealing with, the challenges that we're having, and the successes that we've had that we're ever going to actually affect a change on a bigger scale. Um, so that's what I'm most excited to hear. It's how people have done it realistically, honestly, how do you maintain that resilience? Yeah, Jenny from um, British American Tobacco, who we spoke to just before you, um, she said that, you know, sustainability professionals, it can be quite a lonely place sometimes. Mm. So I've been quite impressed with just the amount of energy around the rooms and how willing people are just to, just to talk to one another. It's been, it's been interesting from the outside looking in. It's just a journalist that's not got a background in sustainability. I always find these types of... Uh, networking fascinating because I don't really do any of that in my profession maybe I should um, that's a note for me anyway um. <laughs> and to that sorry the one point that you said that really resonated it's the fact that every sustainability professional that I meet has something in common which is passion it's the one key thing that we all need to have to be able to do our job you said that sustainability professionals sometimes are lonely I would say you're also loony um, <laughs> <laughs> but we need passion to keep us going but it's also what works internally because we are the face of sustainability with um, within our four walls we need to be able to demonstrate that we believe in, in it that we believe that it's the right thing to do and really carry over that message with, with the rest of the business. So I'm not surprised that people here are high energy because that's what we need to be successful in our business and make sure that people follow us because we believe in it and we're energetic and we're passionate and we're going to get there. No, that's a, that's, a, that's a really good point, actually. Um, and so I think the last time we spoke to Hilton was on a webinar mm. that we did with uh, so it's Sylvia Lowe um, came in and spoke about the sustainable development goals, which is something that I... Uh, you know, having written about a lot of businesses tackling the SDGs, I think Hilton are definitely up there in the kind of vanguard of, of, of action. Um, and we're, we're 10 years away from the SDGs. Um, we've got 10 years to hit some really lofty global goals. And I know the SDGs aren't specifically for business, they're for nations, they're for governments, but there's, there's business applications uh, there. In those 10 years that we've got, how do, how do businesses, uh, and not necessarily just Hilton, but businesses in general, what needs to change so that... <clears throat> the aims of the SDGs, the aims of the Paris Agreement become the purpose of business? It's a great question and we are running out of time um, really um, to, to 
be able to get to where we need to be by 2030. So one thing that we've taken as Hilton is uh, the fact that we needed to align our in internal targets against the SDGs to be able to um, uh, contribute successfully. So we have also our 2030 goals that are aligned with the SDGs to make sure that we have a clear pathway of where we can contribute to that global agenda um, and what the key um, areas are that we can really move the needle on. Because at the end of the day, we don't want to be just uh, an additional um, barrier uh, or an additional layer. We want to be able to make a difference wherever we can. So identifying those key areas of interest and opportunities uh, to leverage our presence has been fundamental. Um, but in terms of where I think we've, we're going to be um, headed towards is going to be a, redefin a redefining the business model completely. We need to be able to put sustainability at the very top of our priorities and that requires looking at the ways that we do business right now, uh, the way that uh, sustainability is valued and the actions that we're taking. And unless that happens, then it's going to be really hard for us to achieve everything else that we want to. Brilliant. And I heard the theme music going on in the auditorium, so I know a session started, so I don't want to keep you any longer. One last question then, and it's a bit of a follow-on to that one. Uh, if a business has got to change that much as you just <clears throat> articulated, what about the sustainability professional? What, what skills do they have to develop along that journey? I think that we need to be critical thinkers and um, change makers. Um, that's going to be... The, the key aspect um, of a sustainability professional going forward because we are at the end of the day determining the strategy for the business we need to be there to advise the business where um, it needs to spend its time its energy advise our colleagues um, that are area uh, specialists in their own right um, where they need to spend uh, that energy and really review their practices so we need to become real um, change makers and review systems change approaches for the whole business and be the leaders that are needed right now to determine what businesses need to do to be successful at, at uh, implementing sustainability. Brilliant. Well, hopefully the forum allows you to um, become that more of a change maker on the journey. But uh, Claudia, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Matt. So it feels a bit strange to say this, but we're almost done with the 2020 Sustainability Leaders Forum. Uh, we're in the afternoon sessions, and I believe after that there's like one more kind of keynote uh, panel session, and, and then that's it. Everyone either leaves or they find a toilet or a phone box to get into their tuxes and, and off to the awards. Uh, and whilst I'm extremely tired, I am also invigorated by the messages that we've heard from people here today. Uh, and what better way to kind of capture the mood and lessons of the forum than by speaking to our children chair for the two days, uh, Solitaire Townsend, co-founder of Futera. Um, I was going to say welcome to uh, the podcast studio because we've been kind of pushed away in a little cold room in the back, but we're actually out in the main foyer where it's a bit more pleasant and a bit more warmer as well. Um, I think the last time I actually spoke to you face-to-face -face, uh, may have been at last year's forum. I think it probably was. Yeah. You and I have a sort of standing date at the forum, isn't <laughs> it's, it's, it's the one day in my calendar. I was like, okay, speak to Solitaire today. Fair <laughs> uh, to say, though, over that 12 months, which has pretty much been a lot's changed in the world of corporate sustainability, would you agree? Oh, it's been an extraordinary ride. Um, I think after 20 years of working in social and environmental sustainability, the last 12 months have been the most intense. I'm absolutely knackered. <laughs> 
definitely and it's it's um it's almost like two days at a forum it's almost not enough to capture all the kind of business announcements all the initiatives and the fact that you've got boris johnson launching his year of climate action pretty much just down the down the road as well it's uh it's a great time to to be having a forum about sustainability leadership um you've obviously been uh, chairing a lot of sessions, moderating a lot of sessions, been able to dip in and out of workshops as well. What, what have been your kind of key takeaways across these, well, it's almost two days, one, one and a half days? <laughs> I've still got sessions to go. <laughs> um, it's always a great honour to chair ED because uh, I get to interact with so many amazing people, listen to so much and get to direct it a little. So right from when Mary Robinson opened this conference to us, I've never seen a room so seated five minutes in advance in silent prepared and waiting for speaker to speak it was absolutely fantastic um, then to hear from the IPCC some fantastic panels on net positive on net zero on regenerative um, I think one of the big things which I've seen over the last few days is how the language is changing hmm. the, the urgency the need for action um, the word disruption um, the people challenging each other on whether it's enough whether it's soon enough um, all that's balanced out with the tell me what to do next, what's the actions, how can I replicate. Um, we've been using Slido, which is a sort of technology where people ask their questions of the panels online and mm. then upvote each other's questions, which I think is fantastic. We know what the room actually wants to ask, um, although it's terribly disappointing if you ask a question and no one votes for it. But it so all the questions that people have been asking are either really hard ones around should we actually be buying stuff at all? What is really going to break through on climate change? And on the other side, lots of questions about how do I start? How do I get started on net zero? What do I do next? Can you talk me through the steps that you've gone through? So I think we've both got a massive raising of ambition and also a great commitment to act, which has just been amazing. It's been very, very motivating to be part of that. Yeah, and I know firsthand how demoralised it can be when your question doesn't get up Voted. I've had a few that are still. Sorry, Matt. I was tempted to just go get a load of different devices and just upvote it just to make myself feel better, but uh, that's just a waste of everyone's time. Um, and at the same time, um, it's great to see sustainability kind of rise up the corporate agenda in general. There's always been uh, a fear um, or even a danger that sustainability professionals operate within a bit of an echo chamber. It's the same people saying the same things. And, you know, in the past, Edie's certainly been probably guilty of. of not trying to change the discussion as much. Is there any, is there any kind of thing when you look across um, the agenda of these two days that you think actually this is a missing piece that, that sustainability professionals perhaps need to start considering? So well, one of the things is looking out across the attendees. I think actually as a profession, as a set of change makers, we need to think about our own diversity. I think that's an issue that um, actually on the stage we've had really, really great levels of diversity, really voices from across the world, voices from here in the UK, but actually we are still really not that diverse, uh, a group of change makers, in terms of who is sitting on the seats. Whilst I actually think here in the UK and worldwide we are a diverse community and I'd like to see that reflected a little bit more. Um, there's two, two things which are intention. I would say within this uh, within this audience and indeed within our movement, one is the need for disruptive breakthrough change, and the other is how hard incremental getting on with it is. So we've got this all of us have got this burning passion to try to do something disruptive and big and to and to make something which which rocks things and that actually change things at speed. At the same time, we all know how actually just the day job and pushing forward day by day to make those commitments and to actually make them stick can be really difficult. So I think we do have that. And, that moment, and I think 
think it's a healthy tension, it's a good tension. I think it makes the incremental move faster and it leaves the door open to the disruption. Yeah, no, I think I probably agree with all of that. And, and I think, as you said, it's it's hard. It's a hard transition to it. It's hard to disrupt. It's hard to get out of business as usual. Even amongst sustainability professionals, you can get into a bit of a rhythm. You can get into a bit of a, this is how we've done things. And we're approaching a big decade of deliverance on some huge global frameworks, SDGs, Paris Agreement, and loads of kind of more kind of specific frameworks around soy deforestation there's too many to list um, but business will need to transform in order to hit them so in this next decade what, what you know how do you see business changing changing for the better um, well, as Futera, we're really privileged to get to work with some of the very big businesses, both on the logic, their architecture and targets, their processes and their big goals, and also on the market, on the on the magic, on the marketing and messaging and how they tell that story. And a couple of things have happened even in the last year that I've been involved in that I just couldn't have imagined happening in previous years. So working with Formula One to set their global net zero target by 2030, including their commitment to move carbon-free and fossil-free on their mm. engines. So if basically if Formula One can get out of petrol, then I think it shows that anyone else can. Again, something which I wouldn't have expected doing. Or through working with Google on their circularity strategy, where they had this breakthrough insight that waste is essentially a data problem. That we've got all of these hundreds of millions of billions of tons of stuff moving around the world. Nobody knows where it is. Nobody knows what state it's in. Nobody knows how to connect up different parts of that circular chain. But if you think of each of those bits of waste or bits of stuff as a bit of information, then actually some of our new technologies, our AI technologies can really help solve that. So again, another project I was incredibly, incredibly honored to be part of. And then on the other side, um, a few months ago, uh, Seventh Generation, the Unilever brand, came to us and said, we will pay for a set of adverts across across US TV, NBC, etc., for the climate strike, for the for the, the, the youth mm. climate movement and 350, if you make the advert for you, Tara. So we got the opportunity to work with the youth climate strikers to talk about climate justice in an advert that went out across NBC. First time climate justice had been mentioned on some of those channels. So what I'm finding is that doors that I've spent a career pushing against are opening and I have to be very careful not to fall through them <laughs> because perhaps I haven't expected them to open so fast. And um, I'm pretty sure that everybody else who's working in this field of ex is experiencing the same, which I think is going to show us that actually some of these doors always perhaps could have been opened and that, we, that we're opening them now and there'll be a few of these doors which are locked shut and those are the ones we're going to have to break down. And so as, as more doors open as you as you put it there's um, it's obviously great news for people within the industry whether it's sustainability first within businesses those working outside to help influence business but there's also danger that as so many doors open you spread yourself a bit too thin um, and that's there are new conversations required in order to really kind of resonate what sustainability should be. What, what kind of skills do you see the, the individual having to really kind of grasp over these next few years as well? Well, I think you absolutely nailed it with prioritisation. I feel this exactly myself. There is so many things I want to be doing right now. There are so many opportunities. There's so many needs. There are so many needs for the skill sets that we have. Deciding where to deploy yourself in order to make the biggest possible change. And also because very few people working in 
sustainability, you're in it for the money. We're all here because we want to make a difference <laughs> in the world. And so actually constantly questioning yourself on, is this the thing I should really be doing? I think it's eating up a lot of sustainability professionals at the moment. Is this the thing that's really going to make the breakthrough? Is this the thing that's really going to make the difference? I know that I feel that myself and I feel that sort of reflected that in a lot of people who've worked in this for a long time. What I would say is prioritise, focus on the things which you know will work. There's so many people coming into this uh, into this sector who don't have that experience, mm. who don't know what works and doesn't work, who haven't had the hard knocks as well as the successes. So focus on what you know works and lift others up. If there's things that you see that need doing, maybe you're not the best person to do them. Maybe I'm not the best person to do it. Maybe we can lift up others to do so because there is so many people who want to work in this sector now. There are so many young people coming into this sector absolutely desperate to make a difference rather than making them wait mm -hmm. until they've got the experience that we have. Let's actually just unleash them, deploy them and maybe they'll come up with solutions that we wouldn't have. Great stuff. And well, you mentioned prioritisation, so I'm very glad you've prioritised the, the forum over these two days. Um, and like you said, there is still one more session that you've got to get involved in, so I won't keep you for much longer. But um, as we were saying just before we kind of uh, started recording, um, the last time we probably spoke over email was around one of the initiatives um, you've been working on. What's what's kind of in the pipeline for Futura that you can share with us right now? <laughs> so uh, obviously Planet Placement that we did in partnership with BAFTA, mm -hmm. which is a guide to how TV and film companies can incorporate sustainability into their programming was fantastic and only three weeks ago I was co-chairing an event with BAFTA which Prince William um, uh, attended with all the commissioning editors so that 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 kind of program continues on so we're, we're still doing that work we're still working on the good life goals of course we're working on um, the honest product the honest generation looking into how young people are fundamentally different to some of the generations that came before and how they'll interact on sustainability but Futero is going to be spreading its wings over this coming year we are going to be going into business with some of our clients to help bring some of the big disruptions to market. Most of our big clients know what the disruption is, they have the products, but sometimes they can be challenged to market and sell those in a startup nimble uh, but you know born good type fashion so yeah we're going to be uh, stretching our wings as Futera and making some stuff okay. good stuff sustainable stuff watch course. watch this space then Solly uh, it's been a pleasure speaking to you thank you so much oh, well thank you it's always an honour to come to ED and a special honour to chair So it's actually time for our last interview of the part two of our Sustainability Leaders Forum podcast special. Uh, yeah, it's, it's almost the very end of the forum. And as with uh, part one, which is still available to listen to, of course, for our iTunes and Spotify, uh, we're trying to extend the, the discussion on sustainability leadership outside of the business sphere to focus on the role of NGOs and charities as well, which is why it's great to be able to welcome uh, Michael Gidney, uh, the Chief Executive of the Fair Trade Foundation, to the Makeshift Podcast Studio right now. Um, how are you, Michael? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Great stuff. Um, I suppose a good place to start is, you know, what brings the Fair Trade Foundation to, to the Leaders Forum? I know you're actually in the same session as Jenny from British American Tobacco, yes. who we've just spoken to, but, you know, from, from your foundation's point of view, what's the, what's the benefit of being here? Well, I mean, it's terrific to be here because it's, it's such a meeting place. There are so many uh, sustainability professionals working in so many different companies now, all of them trying to navigate this really, really complex landscape. So getting everyone together means you go further together. Um, for, fair trade is all about 
if you like, a holistic approach to sustainability, you absolutely need to think about what's been called the triple bottom line, the social, environmental and economic impact of your business. Um, and I've been moderating a session here on um, the, the social side, if you like, so uh, looking at the, uh, the impact of business on people, whether they're in your supply chain, your investors, your uh, staff and employees, your colleagues, or the producing communities. Um, and one of the things that was really clear about that, which strikes very much to the heart of fair trade, is businesses are social actors. Whether you like it or not, you have a social footprint. Now, smart businesses will get it right. They'll look to improve their impact. Those who are a little bit more negligent will find themselves being left behind. And one of the things that's really interesting about today's conference is um, there is a buzz. There is, a, there is an impatience for change amongst the sustainability professionals, which is really good to see. And I want to get a bit more reflection on that session because we've, we've seen so much around climate activism. Um, we've seen so much around resource efficiency, mm. around plastics. And you mentioned the triple bottom line. And there's perhaps danger that people aren't uh, quite at the heart of this yet. Mary Robinson's speech yesterday, she mentioned, you know, that it's great to have the voice of the people that are going to be most impacted by the climate crisis and the ones that have probably the least um, polluting carbon footprint, for example. So, uh, you know, how, how are businesses, organisations, activists across the whole spectrum making climate change a, a person-centric issue? Uh, it's a really good point. Um, and the answer at the moment is they're not doing enough. So um, I would absolutely agree with what Mary Robinson said yesterday. Um, if you really want to tackle um, the climate crisis in a long-term sustainable way, you need to take people with you. Of course, that means your investors or your consumers, but it also means the producers. It means it means if you're a glo in, in a global supply chain, it means thinking about the impact of your business decisions on the farmers, the workers, uh, whether they're in a, in a factory, whether they're in a, working in a mine, whether they're working in a field. Um, and we need to harness them. And most importantly, we need to make sure that the, the, the climate revolution we all of us need to go through is also a, a socially just revolution. So the very worst thing we could do would be to stop sourcing from certain parts of the world, to, to cut off uh, access to global markets um, without really thinking through the consequences. Because otherwise, what will you do? All you'll do is just, for example, deny banana farmers access to the UK market out of some misguided sense that perhaps, you know, uh, because of uh, food miles, you shouldn't buy so many bananas. But actually, there are millions of people around the world who depend on access to the UK for their livelihoods. We need to take them with us. Also, on the farming point, one of the things that Fairtrade is very focused on is the sense of, of farmers becoming um, environmental stewards. Certainly, we need to harness the talent and the skills of farmers if we're going to tackle climate on the ground, on the farms, to tackle the, uh, the climate crisis. The crazy thing is the world still doesn't respect farmers enough. Too many farmers don't earn enough from their produce. So, I mean, to, take, to take one example, um, coffee. Fairtrade is very well known for coffee. Um, there is a minimum price in all Fairtrade products which protects farmers from the, the vagaries of the uh, international coffee market. But currently, farmers earn on the main market less than it costs them to produce the coffee. If they're being paid below the cost of production, 
which is, you know, it, 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 it's happening across the world at the moment in coffee, that means they don't have the money to adapt to shifting harvest patterns, to adapt to the immediate implications of climate change. They don't have the money to invest in their farms, let alone protect the, the biodiversity and the landscape that we need. So, you know, we need to invest in farmers if they're going to be, you know, at the forefront of the, of the battle for climate justice. I imagine it's it's probably a good time to have this conversation. Um, I think anecdotally, just the, the rise of the ethical consumer is is something that's kind of getting covered a lot more in mainstream media. Mm. It seems that consumers in, in general are much more concerned about the impact of their purchases, whether that resonates in comparison to, to price um, and other other aspects of them remains to be seen. But um, but what kind of impact has this this, this kind of muted rise of the ethical consumer had, had for fair trade? Oh, it's enormous. Um, fair trade's been at the vanguard of this for the last 25 years. We've just celebrated our 25th birthday. Um, and now in the UK, the fair trade mark that you'll see on products um, on supermarket shelves is recognised by 93% of the population. I mean, that's, a, that's a, an amazing awareness figure. But in a way, what interests me most is beneath that, 80% of the population trust the fair trade mark. So one of the ways in which we're going to make progress collectively as a society is if we can separate greenwashing or separate mm. sort of corporate hype from real meaningful impact. And the fact that fair trade is so trusted is for me a huge opportunity to tell the right kind of story to the consumer, but also to engage companies who really want, do want to do the right thing in, in uh, showing and telling their story to the public in the right way. And I think... Um you touched upon it with that that kind of socially just transition but one of the key takeaways i've had from the forum that i've been able to sit in so far is that a lot more businesses are looking at the value chain mm -hmm. and the, the life cycle impact of their decisions whether that's the packaging they use whether that's um the investments they make it, it's becoming a lot more um holistic are, are you are you seeing that that shift in general as well I think at the moment it's a little bit of a pendulum swing. So, so really, to be holistic, as I say, you would need to really think in an integrated way about your your supply chain, your impact from a point of view of social, environmental, as well as economic performance. Um, the trick here is for uh, companies to see it as a win-win. So, if you think about um, I don't know, cocoa, for example, um, one of the uh, one of the challenges in cocoa is driven by climate change. Um, the area of a land that's going to be available for cocoa production in the coming years is, is under threat, is reducing. Um, that puts pressure on the supply chain. So companies are focused on security of supply as a driver for their, for their climate mitigation and adaptation. That, that makes perfectly good sense. But again, go back to my point about social justice. You need farmers to stay farming. At the same time, the average age of cocoa farmers in West Africa, where most of the world's cocoa comes from, um, is near retirement age. You know, the next generation don't want to farm because they are paid so badly. So if you, think, if you want to think about long-term security of supply, yes, absolutely, without question, we need to think about the climate crisis. And then we need to think about valuing the role of the farmer within it. And then you get it right. Then you have a fantastic story to tell, which is both managing your risks in the supply chain, managing your security of supply, but also telling a wonderful story of provenance. I mean, one of the great things at the moment, of course, is, as you're rightly saying, you know, the consumers are waking up to the sort of interconnectedness of the world in you know, ways that we've never dreamed of before. That gives those companies a chance to tell the story of provenance, of origin to their consumers. And that really, that really rings a bell. And 
the sustainable development goals have been a key focus for us on ED and a lot of mm. the sustainability professionals there and I think for fair trade as well probably quite hard because it's so many touch points with yes. what you're trying to do not just on the climate yeah. front but on, on those social fronts that you mentioned as well am I 10 years away from them they're obviously not business goals specifically but businesses have you know interact with them they've built strategies on the back of them in order to hit them this, these next 10 years how, how do you see businesses having to transform Oh, there is an enormous transformation that's going to hit us all um, and uh, smart companies will get ahead of the game um, but this is only going to go one way so whether you pick the climate crisis whether you pick uh, social media and um, uh, the the increase in scrutiny whether you uh, pick the the the, the sort of tightening up of re the regulatory environment like the modern slavery act for example um, the the space available for companies to do their own thing with impunity is, is is really reducing so as I say smart companies will get ahead what that means is is being authentic so there is absolutely no point in, in, in proclaiming your social purpose, your social mission, your social value as a company if you are knowingly underpaying people in your supply chain. That kind of exploitation will be found out. One of the things that Fairtrade is very focused on is the need to pay farmers and workers around the world a living income or a living wage. It's not easy to do, it's complex, so you do it in steps, you do it in sequence. Um, and I think in the future the public, investors, um, the, the media will, will reward those companies who are authentic about and honest about the challenges they're facing, the journey they're on, the progress they're making, um, and you know, not marking their own homework, looking for external scrutiny. And as a follow-on then, the, the individual within that book, like sustainability professionals, they mm. usually work in small teams depending on the size, and um, I suppose as as I'm speaking to you, the procurement professionals, well, even those working on the ground in those developing countries to to help train train the farmers, what what kind of skills are, are they going to have to develop in these next ten years? Oh wow! It's I mean, well, you know, twenty years ago it didn't exist. <laughs> um, in twenty years' time, will the sustainability industry exist? Um, perhaps a great deal of it will become regulatory compliance. Um, but regulation only goes so far. You know, there are still all kinds of anomalies and exceptions. Uh, there are aspects of global supply chains where you just need a different, more human approach, less you know, tech-driven or less you know, regulatory-driven. Um, so I think sustainability professionals need to expect to be agile, to have to train and retrain, to expose. Um, we need to expose ourselves to, to new and different challenges. You need to unlearn old things and relearn new things or learn new things. Um, the, the, I think the, the one uh, thought I have on this is, is you don't need to do it on your own. That's why events like this are so important, where sustainability professionals come together. But in a way, that's why organisations like Fair Trader are helpful, because you know, if you're a buyer in a retailer, there's no way you can possibly be across the enormity of the uh, supply chain risks and opportunities on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of product lines. You need third parties to help you. Um, so Fairtrade is very well networked around the world. We're co-owned by the farmers, so we are one of you know, many routes into solving these problems. So I think the trick is to know enough about what your role is to be able to be clear what your role isn't and where you should work with others, and then to collaborate with other professionals in these kinds of spaces, like at the conference today. So you can just learn from best practice, because best practice is coming fast and the world is changing fast, so we all need to be nimble and have our eyes and ears open always. Yeah, we spoke to um, Diageo and Waterade um, 
yesterday for the podcast and they mentioned that their their relationship had grown from a kind of philanthropic partnership to a strategic one and I think that's probably what we're going to see a lot more businesses look to do based on those points you just said. Absolutely and that's I mean that's very much the case with Fairtrade. So Fairtrade is best known for um, having a set of these rigorous social environmental and economic standards and companies or products that comply can use the Fairtrade certification mark and they're checked and audited. That's still the lion's share of what we do and we work with very big brands. Um, if Ben and Jerry's, we work with Mars, with Mondelez, we work with uh, many big retailers, the co-op in the UK, Waitrose in the UK, many others. Um, but we also work with uh, companies to provide advice for them on how they build their own sustainability journey. Um, and the, it could be quite dispiriting when you, when you look at the scale of the challenges across the range. As you say, if we need to close the gap mm. um, on the global goals in 10 years, how the hell are we going to do it? The trick is not to be disheartened, to start and then speak to organizations that can help you. Um, and as I say, we, we advise companies on their own understanding of their supply chain and how to start to progress. Okay, well, I think that was a nice positive note to finish on. Don't be disheartened. Don't um, be disheartened. Great stuff, Michael. Um, I appreciate it's it's kind of coming towards the end of the forum. There's, I think, one more networking session. I need to be able to get changed into a tuxedo at some point um, ah. because I've got to get a transfer to the awards. So I'll, I'll, um, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, Michael. Thank no, you. Well, thank you for having me. So there you go. Five interviews were promised at the start of the day, and I think, if my maths is correct, and it's not usually, that is five interviews delivered. Um, which means we can bring an end to this podcast and an end to the Sustainability Leaders Forum. They are in the auditorium right now for the last session. It's Ask Us Anything. It's under Chatham House, so I can't bring the recorder in there, unfortunately. Um, and you can probably hear behind us um, the all the kind of stands um, are all being packed away now so we've got to be quick with this um, I've got our senior reporter Sarah George with me yet again Sarah um, summary of probably both days but obviously a bit more focused on the second because we've already done the first but how, how have you found the forum? This is a really big ask Matt because I'm 99% coffee and about 1% actual you know human <laughs> journalist um, at this point but I think that um, today has marked not only a continuation of the conversations from yesterday, but just a lot more hands-on. We've had loads of workshops um, today. People have really enjoyed sort of co-creating solutions as well. It's important not just to hear stories, but to turn them into tangible actions that are um, relevant for your own organisation. And some of the topics we've, we've covered, just it's a whistle-stop tour of everything. <laughs> with sustainability really so human rights and supply chain mm -hmm. diversity and inclusion engaging employees communicating with customers unlocking innovation and becoming a fixed change maker so a real broad array of issues um covered here a lot of energy to solve them all that was very nice but i literally have nothing to Sorry. add oh Hello, look who it is. Oh. We finally got him. I, I said at the start it's going to be my mission Am possible. I just on the podcast. Yes. You have. Really didn't know this was happening. Yeah, it was, I said at the start it's my, my mission possible for today was to, to get Luke Nichols back on the podcast. Oh, and here he, here he is. How, okay. how are you, Luke? How have you yeah. found the forum? I am very well, yeah, it's been good. I really wasn't ready for this. I'm just packing up my stuff about <laughs> to go across to the awards. Um, yeah, it's been fantastic. It has just been an amazing couple of days. Um, I mean, I've kind of answered that with two hats on, one from a content perspective, uh, the other from a kind of an organiser's perspective. From a content perspective, I think um, it has been fascinating just to sort of get that kind of uh, 
feeling and sense of positivity from the amount of people that have, firstly from the sheer amount of people that have come along today um, but also from some of the key messages that came out I do think that Mary Robinson's keynote still sticks out with me the whole sort of Prisoners of Hope's Hope line, um, which I'll be referencing in my award speech tonight. Um, so that was a standout session. I really liked the Ask Us Anything sort of Chatham House style mm. conversation, which I suppose I can't reflect too much on in this, con in this conversation. But um, what was quite nice is just operating a Chatham House style um, conversation meant that we heard from some real big businesses talking very candidly about the challenges they faced and one of them even saying you know they felt like at points they wanted to just sort of stop working yeah. in the company they were working for because they felt so up against it and so much like they were kind of hitting a brick wall but that's what it's felt like over the last two days is that a lot of people are those brick walls are kind of coming down um last thing i'll say this is a long answer isn't it but the, the, <laughs> the round table that we were at that sarah and i was at last night with a few of the speakers there's a really nice line from martin gettings that came out of that that stuck with me as well where he said um the role of the sustainability professional is, has evolved from one of being an activist, activist to activator to becoming more of an activator. Mm -hmm. So in the past, they've been activists trying to get people to listen to them, trying to get people convinced about the kind of climate emergency and having to act. And now they're actually so many people in the businesses are on board with the climate, with understanding the severity of the climate emergency that now it's actually about becoming an activator and, and connecting people across the business and actually turning those initial kind of words into actual actions within the organisation. So, very good from a content perspective. From an organiser perspective, I suppose you look at these things from kind of the other way around, kind of how many things have gone wrong. And this year, not many, honestly, you can count them on one hand, and they're all very small things that I don't think have affected the audience. So it will probably bore the audience, but I think from an organising perspective, it's been really good, really nice to see increase in, in, in visitor numbers, um, seems like the scores on the uh, on the content are going to be higher, I think, than last year. Um, yeah, it was a nice lunch, and uh, looking forward to the awards tonight. Yeah, the awards are the last stop on the sustainability leadership week. It feels like essentially, um, we were going to record Luke's speech for the podcast, but we did not have that much <laughs> memory on. on it whatsoever. It's not that long. It's only it's like less than eight minutes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, it's not too bad. We're still not going to record it though. Um, but yeah, like I said, uh, we're going to make our way to the awards. We've got to kind of stop off either in a phone box or a toilet to get get our tuxes and our dresses on. Yes, um, it's an extremely glamorous and professional organisation. Exactly. Uh, uh, so with that, I think that's about it for today's episode. Uh, as a reminder, these all our episodes, including part one of the Sustainability Leaders Forum uh, podcast, can be accessed via Spotify, via iTunes, uh, via the ED website by searching Sustainable Business Covered. Um, Coming up on the horizon in terms of podcasts, I think Sarah's got uh, a bit of an expose in, into the fashion, into the world of fashion. We've been, you've been speaking to a few firms there. I wouldn't call it an expose. It's actually a positive look at some of the companies that are do, doing right um, and some case studies on how, how circularity could become a reality. Okay, well, to expose, wrong word, but a positive look on uh, the world of sustainability in fashion. So do look out for that. Uh, do look out for all our future podcast episodes. I imagine they'll be transitioning towards the theme of Net Zero as we approach our Net Zero Live conference in May as well. But until next time, it's a goodbye from Sarah. Goodbye. A goodbye from me. And just before he goes, a goodbye from Luke. Goodbye. Goodbye.